Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Beyond the Big Screen Podcast with your host, Steve Guerra. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Big Screen Podcast, where we talk about great movies and stories so great they should be movies. Links to learn more about our guest today can be found in the show notes. You can support Beyond the Big Screen on Patreon.com. By joining on Patreon, you help keep Beyond the Big Screen sustainable and get many great benefits. Go to patreon.com forward slash beyond the big screen to learn more and sign up. Find show notes, links to subscribe, and leave Apple Podcast reviews by going to our website, beyondthebigscreen.com. And now, let's go beyond the big screen. All right, today we're talking about The Last Valley, and I'm joined today with by Ben, who is the host of the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast. And this movie is going to be really in his wheelhouse. And we're joined by special guest Gary, who's going to, he's, he's the one who actually brought us this to this great movie. And he is going to fill us in on a little bit of the back information on this movie as well. Ben, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So, uh, my show is uh, Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. It's all about uh, re- the religious wars in the early modern period in Europe, uh, which includes the Thirty Years' War, which is the subject of this movie. Uh, if you want to learn more about the podcast, you can go to Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast.weebly.com. Um, and in my personal life, um, I just drank a, uh, a drink that I've decided to call the Lazy Dirty Bastard Martini. <laughs> <laughs> I like the sounds of that. <laughs> it has ice in it, and uh, it's a dirty martini with vodka and gin. <laughs> sounds very good. That's the way to podcast. And then we're also joined by special guest Gary, who you've heard from before, if you've ever listened to our collaborations. How do, Gary? How do, Steve? Uh, I'm not drinking any alcohol at the minute because it's only the early afternoon here in wet and rainy Australia. Uh, I'm Gary Stevens from the History in the Bible podcast, and I'm just here to annoy the other two experts. <laughs> <laughs> Gary actually introduced me, and I believe you as well, too, Ben, to this movie called The Last Valley. And just a brief synopsis of the movie is... It's set during the Thirty Years' War, and a small valley which had avoided the worst of the war had to offer up to that point. 
And a great quote from the very beginning of the movie is, The Thirty Years' War began in 1618. It began as a religious war, Catholics against Protestants. But in their relentless pursuit of power, princes of both faiths changed sides as it suited them, and in the name of religion, butchered Europe. And that was by James Clavell, um, who he can really turn a phrase... That's a that's a pretty good summary of the conflict, actually, although, you know, obviously there's more nuance than you can ever put into one sentence. But, yeah, I mean, that summarizes most of it. Yeah, I think <laughs> right that he, hit, he pretty much hit it on the nail with that one. Courtesy of IMBD, here's a couple of de- uh, production details on the movie. It was released in the winter of 1971. It stars Michael Caine as Captain, Omar Sharif as Vogel, Florinda Bolkan as Erica, Brian Blessed as Korsky, who gets a helmet and has got at about 10 minutes in it for our British <laughs> friends out there who he's a really big deal. It's a pretty long movie at a runtime of two hours and five minutes, at least long by my standards. It's based on a novel by an author named J.B. Pick and was directed and screenplay by James Clavell, who is the author of Shogun, Taipan, Noble House, and a a bunch of other great books and movies. Uh, He was involved in the filming of those movies as well. And he wrote the he also wrote the screenplay to The Great Escape. So he was really he had his fingers in a lot of different pots in the 60s and the 70s i don't know about you guys i personally loved shogun the movie or the like 80 hour miniseries and the book uh, i haven't seen i haven't seen either unfortunately i've seen pieces of it oh wow it's pretty interesting that james Clavell's an australian by birth so he's a uh, fellow countryman of yours gary yeah australians keep popping up in the oddest places don't they and Gary, you had mentioned that it was filmed in a particular style or um, film type called Todd AO 70 millimeter. Yeah, Todd AO. Uh, Michael Todd was actually Elizabeth Taylor's husband who died in a plane crash. And he developed an alternative to, I don't know if it's Cinerama or Cinemascope, you know, the huge widescreen formats. But they used three cameras and three projectors, and Todd I.O. was just a single camera, single projector, and it was meant to be a replacement for these really big widescreen things. But I think that um, this movie was one of the last Todd I.O. films ever released, so it, it went nowhere in the end. And I would have really have loved to see this. I just watched it on regular TV, really compressed, and I think it would have been amazing in the theater. Yeah. The visuals were were really spectacular, but then I watched it on a on my phone, so uh, <laughs> some of it was lost on me. There were a couple scenes that I had trouble following. <laughs> there are huge wide vistas in this film, of, <laughs> and you watched it on phone. Right. Yes, <laughs> that's what I have time for between uh, right. my job and my baby. You know. Yeah. So. <laughs> I did watch part of it on a tablet too, so I guess I'm guilty as well. <laughs> Well, at least I watched it on a big screen television. (laughs) So as usual, our basic format today is we're going to discuss the cast a little bit, and then we are going to get into the context of the movie. Then after that, we're going to take a couple of the key scenes of the movie and really dig into them to see what was historical, what was not historical, and really how did how well did this movie represent the Thirty Years' War? 
it had a really well the top part of the playbill was a really incredible cast of Michael Caine and Omar Sharif and Michael mm. Caine he's the I mean I couldn't the whole show would be based on just reading off verbatim his <laughs> cast list uh the things that he's been in and he is also the recipient of two academy awards as best supporting act- actor which is kind of surprising oh i didn't Oh, I didn't know he'd won any Academy Awards. One for uh, Woody Allen's film, Hannah and Her Sisters, which I actually just watched that one. It was pretty oh, good. Yeah. And then uh, in I the think- Cider House Rules, which I only saw a little bit of that one. He stole that movie. He stole that movie completely. <laughs> I, have, I haven't seen it. Is that the one where he's a doctor or something? Yeah, he he's a doctor at a... Uh, but he like he's the head of this facility that... Um, they're, they take in orphans, and the orphans work in an orchard, but then very, very secretly, they are also performing illegal abortions. Oh. Um, it's a depressing movie, and it makes you want to die, oh. but it's a very good movie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> right. I mean, this key's a comedian once said that Michael Caine starred in his wedding home videos. I mean, th- there's, is there a movie that he really hasn't been in? Yeah, he seems to, he seems to like working. I mean, I can't. I can't believe he does it for the money. Yeah, no. At this point, no. But one of my favorites <laughs> was from very early in his career, the movie Zulu. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It was. Oh yeah. It's kind of a guilty pleasure at this point, but it's great. <laughs> and it's sort of interesting. I mean, because he's got a pretty working class background, and he plays this upper class snob in that movie. So it's <laughs> interesting to watch. Well, then in this movie, he has a German accent, which is amazing. Yeah. This movie is great for, like, all these actors being, you know, really strutting their stuff because you don't recognize any of them. They're they're really in character. <laughs> yeah. That leads us into our next great actor, who is Omar Sharif, plays the character of Vogel in the movie. And he's an Egyptian of Lebanese descent actor. And he starred in great roles such as in Dr. Shivago, Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, I guess you might not class it as great, but I really like the movie The 13th Warrior and <laughs> many, many others. Uh, Omar Sharif always adds dignity to a role, doesn't he? Yeah, he really does. He was wonderful in this movie. I thought that he, what he always brings to a role is that he's oddly, or not not oddly, like vaguely foreign. It's not, he's not playing a foreigner, but he exudes like something that's not of the ordinary, which I think really, it adds a lot of interest to the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, for an American audience watching this, it lets you believe that he's a German. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's a Kiwi actor, very similar, actually. I think his name's Michael Curtis. He's played Iraqis. Mm. He's played um, Pablo Escobar. He's, he's some guy who can morph into a whole bunch of different nationalities. Quite easily, yeah, just like Omar. To me, that's the mark of an actor, too, where it's so many of the movies, uh, Tom Hanks comes to mind. No matter what movie Tom Hanks is in, he's just playing a character as Tom Hanks. But we won't go too far afield on my views on Tom Hanks. <laughs> then, then we have the Swedish actor Per Oxkerson, who plays the rabid priest Father Sebastian, which is kind of interesting. He was he turned on and off as a rabid priest. Part of the time he was a very reasonable priest, 
and then he would turn rabid. Yeah, I mean, we we can get into this a little bit later, but you know, it's tough to when you're figuring, trying to figure out how you feel about a character from this this era. It must be difficult for even people trying to get into character. Uh, you know, on the one hand, if you study the Catholics from within their own context, they come off as very reasonable and philosophical and well-grounded and internally coherent. And then if you study them sort of from an outside perspective and in terms of what they did to other people, then it's just like, you know, uh, raving lunatics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's, uh, it, it can, it can be tough to understand how to deal with people like that. Um, as a historian and probably as an actor too. Steve here again. We are a member of the Parthenon Podcast Network featuring great shows like Josh Cohen's Eyewitness History and many other great shows. Go to Parthenon Podcast to learn more. And now, here is a quick word from our sponsors. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, everyone. I'd like to say something about a new product I've tried called Calatrin. Doctors endorse it. Nutritionists recommend it and customers love it. Calatrin is for healthy weight loss. I have taken Calatrin myself and I can honestly confirm that I've lost weight, I sleep better, and I have found relief from a joint injury that I sustained in my arm. Calatrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age, and I am reaching of that age where things decrease. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply, and this week, take advantage of their President Day Sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word BBS to 30605 and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Text the word BBS to 30605. Give Calatrin a try. I think you'll enjoy it and I'll talk to you next time. 
Definitely. Our next actor is Nigel Davenport. He was quite the, well, he plays the pragmatic head honcho Gruber of the village that they're in. He was sort of just a B-list British actor. I don't think that for most Americans, he would necessarily rise to the top of somebody that they had heard of. I think I may have seen him in an old movie once, but I'd never be able to say that his name was Nigel Davenport. <laughs> no, no, same here. I mean, I had to look him up. His face was vaguely familiar. And then I looked, oh, yeah, it's that guy. But he's, he's always going to be that guy. Right. But the character was fantastic, oh, yeah. I have to say. It's one of my favorites. He was another one. We'll get into this. He he also, he was reasonable. He was unreasonable. I think that's what that really Clavel was going for it that came across in this age is that it was just crazy. Yeah. It was an unreasonable time. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then we have the main female uh, role was played by a Brazilian-born actress, Florinda Bolcon. She won several Italian film awards, and that's really what she's known for, is movies in the Italian film sphere and not so much in the Anglosphere. But she did an admirable job. Yeah, I think that, that she starred mainly in Italian films as a bit of a loss to English-language filmmaking, really. Yeah. 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 Then finally, he played a very bit role, but he's, from what I've heard from Gary, at least, and maybe Gary can explain a little bit more about Brian Blessed, who he was, he played a small <laughs> role in this, but he's quite the actor and well-known in England and in Great Britain. And for people who like British films and television. <laughs> yes, he's quite famous. As Ben said, he's 50% beard and 50% teeth. Uh, <laughs> He, he, he's regarded as somewhat of a national living treasure in, in Britain, and he's not only an actor, he's a mountaineer. He goes looking for yetis. Uh, and the Nepalese say, well, Brian, you look like a yeti, so you found one. <laughs> he's amazing. Uh, everything he, I mean, the, the roles that he, the movies he's in where he's playing a major role where he's not killed 10 minutes in. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Uh, I guess, yeah, we always, I always say this too late, but spoiler alerts. This is going to be all spoiler alerts. <laughs> the thing is with Brian Blessed, you don't even recognize him because he's pretty early in his career here. So he's not 50% teeth, 50% beard yet. But of course, his best role, uh, objectively, I think we can all agree on this, is in uh, Flash Gordon. And oh, Gordon's alive! <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a, an Art Nouveau style print of Hawkman dive as the background on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, which is all to say that I'm a huge nerd. and um, Yeah, we're taking a deep dive into movies right now on TV. <laughs> Go, going deep. Let's dig into the context of the movie and talk a little bit about this is obviously a fictitious event set during the historically real 30 years war. Ben, maybe you can give us just a very brief background on what the I mean, as brief as you can get on what the background yeah. of the 30 years war is. This is an intensely complicated war. I, I, I don't think. In general, wars can be summarized in like a sentence, uh, although James Clavell did a great job up there. But um, it, of, you know, given that opinion in general, 30 Years War is particularly complicated. Um, it sort of started out as this tiff between a very somewhat fanatically Catholic Holy Roman Emperor 
and this just one section of his domain, uh, which was Bohemia. Uh, there was something called the Second Defenestration of Prague, and to not go into too much detail, uh, Bohemia went into open revolt, but they needed someone to be their king, because it was, you know, the end of the Middle Ages, you need a king. So they invited a prince in from elsewhere in the empire, which created this situation where um, the emperor went in and imposed order, and then also wanted to revenge himself on the prince's original domain, which created... Um, a situation where, um, and, and I should say, the, the Bohemians were, were Protestants, and this king they brought in to be their king was, was Protestant. And so it quickly broke down along political and religious lines, um, where the, the big overarching theme was religion, with the Protestants versus the Catholics. Um, Protestantism was relatively new, but it had already sort of somewhat stabilized, but the uh, the emperor wanted to go in and and get rid of it, uh, so that was sort of one angle. And obviously, the Protestants didn't want to be gotten rid of, but the Protestants also hated the Catholics, so that's another angle. But then, within the context of the Holy Roman Empire, there was a constitutional crisis that was created by the emperor going into the domains of these princes, who were effectively independent for to a large extent. Uh, and him coming in and wiping out the domain of one of the princes and putting someone else in charge. Well, that was a threat to everybody. And it sort of broke down. Uh, and I, I sort of, at the risk of creating a, a firestorm debate uh, by talking about something that's controversial, I, I think of it as somewhat analogous to the debate that continues to go on about the American Civil War, where on the one hand you have people saying it's about slavery, and on the other hand, you have people saying it wasn't about slavery, it's about states' rights. And then the first group of people say, yeah, but it was about states' rights to hold slaves. And it goes back and forth forever, and that's not really the point. But the point here is that you had people going, well, it's prince rights, the prince's rights. Uh, and then the people who are religiously motivated would say, yeah, but it's about the prince's rights to be heathens and, you know, <laughs> screw up the church and everything. And, and, and then that would go back and forth. And so... Um, it gradually built from this minor little rebellion into a more and more serious war where the, the Protestant princes were ranged up against the Catholic princes under the leadership of the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, and then... But when it became clear that the Holy Roman Emperor was trying to sort of take over the Protestant prince's lands and reorganize them in a more centralized manner, that then became a threat to people even outside the empire. Because having the empire be sort of somewhat weak and divided internally worked out pretty well for people like the king of Denmark, who was also technically a prince within the empire. Uh, and then uh, the Swedes were hanging out there, and they were getting very ambitious. And then most notably the French, who were presented with the situation where the, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire was a Habsburg, the king of the Spanish Empire was also a Habsburg, and so the French were looking at potentially being completely surrounded, uh, and then having this strengthened Holy Roman Empire right on their, their eastern flank. And um, the thing, and so people started getting involved in the war from all over the place. Uh, and the thing that gradually became clear is that the French were Catholic, um, and actually having the, the Habsburgs get so strengthened ended up sort of being a threat to the Pope, too. 
And so by the end of the war, you had the Pope sort of winking at the Catholic French who were supporting the Protestants to fight the Holy Roman Emperor and the Spanish. Uh, and the war very clearly no longer was about religion. Um, but it had taken on a, a very grim logic of its own where everyone was sort of faced with this existential threat if they didn't win. And so they kept fighting. Well, I think you did an admirable job summarizing the 30 years war, especially given that in your podcast, you're going into the really background <laughs> of the, of the war starting back in the eights and the nine hundreds. Yeah. This really goes this whole conflict. And maybe that's why it was so bloody is that it goes so deep into what Europe is. Very much so. I mean, before this conflict, uh, and we, we've done an entire podcast on, on whether or not this conflict was actually the turning point, but, um, you know, before this conflict, to a certain extent, Europe was very much the Europe of the Middle Ages. Uh, and even through this conflict, um, you know, that persisted and, and, and after to a certain extent. But a lot of the, the things that got drawn into this conflict are the increasing centralization of the European political entities that would become states. You know, France was sort of, well, England was probably the first off the mark. Uh, but then France, in competition with England, had become extremely centralized to a terrifying degree to everyone else. So did the Spanish. Uh, and then now here's the Habsburgs in the Holy Roman Empire trying to do the same thing. Uh, and this, then it comes up against religion, which is the mainstay of, you know, life in the Middle Ages. Uh, and it, it all sort of took on this uh, insane logic uh, as all these different forces, social, military, political, and economic forces just collided in this one event uh, that killed somewhere between a quarter and a third of the population of Germany. Oh, that's terrible. Makes the First World War look reasonable. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> this is really kind of where the idea of modern modernity and the modern state comes out of, too, not to plug another podcast that we participated in, but the the whole Westphalian system of how states govern themselves comes out of this time period, too, right? Yeah, very much so. I mean, the war itself was just sort of when it was happening. Uh, the war didn't necessarily cause anything to happen, except to say that... Um, the, the states were these medieval political entities, which were really amorphous groups of alliances, of families, uh, were working out the kinks and bringing these new tools out of their toolkit and making all these mistakes that they needed to make in order to work out how to be centralized states in the modern sense. Um, and I think that that's the, the competition that this war represented, um, represented the, the sort of a the crucible in which all this stuff was kind of worked out to a certain extent. And some states fell and a lot of states fell and, a lot, and the ones who survived as the ones that were on top of the pile ended up with a lot of new tools in their toolkit, including things like standing armies um, and functional bureaucracies that weren't based on, you know, a treasury that was under the King's bed. And that's interesting you bring it up because that's probably the main focus of this movie is on mercenaries. And mercenaries were a key part of this war and really the late medieval 
period where the king, like you said, he had a big purse under his bed and he had his household retainers, but really right. anything extra on top of that were paid mercenaries. Can yeah, you maybe the, explain a little bit about how mercenaries worked at that time? Sure. So I, I think the, the first thing to say is that in the Middle Ages, there were two ways that you got soldiers. And one is the system of political alliances we call feudalism. And that's everybody had their retainers and the king would say, I want an army. You guys you know, you pledged loyalty to me, and so everyone needs to show up. But uh, from a realistic standpoint, um, the the feudal levies would show up sort of if it was convenient, if they were on board, if they were sold on it. Um, and then at the end of the day, the kind of army you got sort of depended on how much fighting your nobility had been doing recently. Uh <laughs> Which, you know, they were a glorif they were a military caste, which meant that they were better than, you know, a militia, but they weren't much more than a militia. They didn't have a whole lot of discipline, and that showed itself from time to time in the Middle Ages. The other thing you could do was hire people. Um but the states or the, the political entities of the Middle Ages didn't have a great way to make money. Um, you know, Everything was sort of based on agricultural produce, and the, there was no real taxation bureaucracy. So the money that was on hand was often not reliable. Uh, but that said, you, you'd take what money you had on hand out from under your mattress, your royal mattress, and you'd hire guys who just happened to show up. And there were gradually things that happened to make this a more convenient process. So it wasn't just showing up on a street corner with your pickup truck and saying, you know, I need 10 guys with swords. Uh, you know, people would form themselves into units. Um, the, the sort of classic version that people talk about is the lance, which wasn't just one guy with a lance. It was actually one guy, a couple guys to hold his armor, and maybe some infantrymen that would go along with him. And so when you read sources from the Middle Ages and they talk about an army of a hundred lances, it wasn't just a hundred guys. It was a hundred guys plus two guys to hold their armor, you know, so it was 300 guys and then a couple infantrymen that came along with them. Uh, there wasn't any standardization, but this sort of gradually grew as a convention. Uh, and in the early modern period, what this turned into was almost, um, you know, at, at the same time uh, in the early modern period, the beginnings of modern capitalism were happening. Uh, companies were starting. People would pour, pool their resources to take risks on a venture. And the mercenaries were sort of should be seen in a similar light. It was people who would pool, pool resources to go out and hire men train them, equip them, and then offer their services to the highest bidder. Um, usually, given the uh, amount of men and material that would be required, they did this with the approval of some sort of governmental entity at this point. Uh, but they were working for themselves, ultimately. It was, you know, the, the guy who raised the company, he was the guy who was taking the financial risk. He was the guy who was responsible for having the men show up and feeding them and paying them. And he would hopefully turn around and get reimbursed by whoever was his uh, um, employer at the time. So it really was a there was a very wide spectrum of professionalism in these mercenary bands where you might have on one side a pretty professional force and on the other side a ragtag group of maybe outcasts from the professional bands and just yeah. depending on whatever worked out at that time to make a little scratch. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and you'd see a lot of that, especially whenever there was a conflict that lasted for more than a little while, um, starting in the in the late the middle to the late Middle Ages, uh, you'd end up with groups of people who had just sort of went, well, I don't really, you know, this isn't working out for me, so I'm just going to go over there and take what I want. Um, and then there were people who would also just show up at the army camp and say, I, I want I want to work for you, and they'd get brought on uh, willy-nilly. And then there were also, like you said, the more professional, uh, hardcore groupings. Uh, and there was a wide spectrum. And in this movie, it sure seemed like that was a ragtag band. At least that's how I got my... That's how I felt that they came across as, that they weren't one of these professional bands. You get indications both ways. Um, they, visually, definitely. And in terms of the way they were behaving, there was a lot of that. But then, um, you know, there were some things that the captain said that were like, we all agreed and we swore to fight as a unit, uh, regardless of religion. We would, you know, work for whoever was winning or the highest bidder or whatever he said. Um, you know, that that was very much in line with even the most professional groups um, that your ultimate loyalty was to the unit uh, and the unit functioned as a corporation, as a collective entity. One thing that struck me is that although the captain is depicted throughout as pragmatic and competent and a good leader, he loses three of his own guys in the first 20 minutes. Uh, yeah, Brian blesses his first to go. Um, Brian Blessed's, Blessed's friend then gets the chop. So he's eliminating his own people. So I thought there was a bit of a bit of a contradiction. Yeah, realistically, I think you'd be right. <laughs> um, it, it was useful within the context of the movie to be just like human life is so cheap; these people can be replaced pretty easily. Um, real, and you know, I think one thing that was missing from the movie was him making some attempt to recruit. Uh, some of the local young men, which would certainly have been an aspect of the uh, the ongoing efforts to maintain the unit. But yeah, definitely, you don't want to just you don't want to just lose men willy nilly. But then again, you know, uh, the way you maintain discipline in a group of killers is you kill some of them sometimes. Yeah, that's what I thought that was kind of interesting because that probably is a practical matter as a captain of that sort of mercenary grouping. You've got to be pretty tough because you don't want the the troops to think you can screw with the captain. But then again, you don't want to go into the next battle two good guys yeah. down. I mean, ultimately what came out of this and what happened, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, uh, temporally, not in terms of the movie, um, what ultimately happened with these mercenary companies is that they were just put on permanent retainer and they became standing armies. And uh, the standing armies that came out of this era, you know, would have formal handbooks for how you maintained discipline. And almost all of them included things like floggings and hangings, but you reserved hangings for really bad situations. Mostly you just want to flog people, um, sometimes to death, but <laughs> you maintained discipline and... Uh, sometimes that involved uh, corporal punishment that was short of death in order to make people think twice in a way that would still leave you with someone who could hold a rifle at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, well the British Navy was flogging people well into the 19th century, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. American Navy, too. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Then you have the the mercenary element that didn't really carry over a modern member of, say, the British Army or the uh, a really good sergeant in the American Army can't say, well, you know what, I'm going to go start up my own company and sell myself out. That's part of a part of the deal, I think, that probably helped things calm down once they had retained retained armies. Yeah, I mean, part of the the issue and one of the things that's going to be a thing as we keep talking about this is that you know, one of the things that makes the modern standing army function as it is, is that it's supported by and intertwined with the state bureaucracy. Um, the army, you know, the, the people out in the field holding guns aren't doing recruiting. There are, you know, members of the armed forces who are manning the, you know, the Navy recruitment center down the block or whatever. But um, to a certain extent, you know, recruiting is done as a civilian venture, as part of this larger bureaucracy that the government maintains. The people in the army are paid by taxes that are gathered by civilian tax collectors. Uh, resources and food are gathered by, you know, uh, you know th- th- this much larger bureaucracy that goes beyond the fighting men. Um, that was only in its infancy at this stage, uh, which led to there not being a regular supply of food or money or what have you for the soldiers who are out on campaign. And so they had to sort of find it. Then you're just digging the mess a little bit deeper. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, you know, so we saw, you know, even if you go back to the hundred years war, uh, the mercenary companies would often go off the chain just because, you know, they weren't getting fed and paid regularly. So, you know, it's nice of you to say that you want to protect the Norman peasantry, you know, King of England, but I want to eat. So I'm going to go raid that village and take everything. And, you know, if that happens enough times, maybe I just decide not to come back and I just go out raiding forever until someone stops me. Uh, and so these big military conflicts starting in the high middle ages and continuing on into the early modern period, if they continued past a certain point, there would just be this sort of scar tissue of free mercenary bands who are just taking advantage of the lack of law and order to just run around and do whatever the heck they wanted. I think we've set things up pretty well. Next, we'll get into the key scenes. Okay, now we're going to get into the opening scene of the movie, which is really, it has like kind of a cool art to it. What were, you had some uh, interesting thoughts on that, Ben. <laughs> it may have been based on... Uh, you know, some, some earlier work from the period or something. I I don't know, but, uh, I was just, I, as I was watching it, I was like, oh man, I know that art style. Um, there is a, an album called no one left the disco alive by Seminole ska metal band thumper. Um, and the back cover involved art in that style, which was a reference to the song, Holy roller versus Jedi master. And it featured a picture of the Pope fighting a Jedi. Interesting. (laughs) But the opening scene is just these sort of cartoony figures of popes swinging their sticks at each other and dudes with swords. So it's the first scene is, kind of confused in the movie. I was a little confused with it, but Gary, can you set the stage a little bit for what that very first scene was? Because it was powerful. Yeah, in the very first scene, the entire landscape is wreathed in fog. And we see Vogel Omar Sharif stumbling through the landscape. He's obviously trying to get away from something and find food. And all he finds is people hanged from crosses and gibbets. 
Uh, he finds plague victims. So the entire opening um, seven, ten minutes or so is just a depiction of horror, death, destruction, and poor little Vogel is trying to get out of there. Man, I need you know I need to catch a boat to America or something, <laughs> but he but he but he can't. So that's the opening scene, and that stands fairly self enclosed because yeah. fairly soon thereafter he stumbles into the idyllic valley. Yeah, um, there's a scene in there also where he stumbles into a village where there everyone's alive and asks for food or whatever and offers to pay mm. money, uh, and then shortly thereafter a mercenary company shows up and sacks the village. And their version of sacking the village is pretty much killing everyone, uh, raping the women, probably killing them too, and then taking all the stuff. Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. This is organized crime and punishment. History and crime like you've never heard it. Joy and Mustache Chris, Steve, and their crew as they take deep dives into the fascinating stories of the Mafia. Find organized crime and punishment at the website, organizedcrimeandpunishment.com, and everywhere else you find great podcasts. Make sure you tell your friends about organized crime and punishment so that friends of yours can become friends of ours. Forget about it. What do you do when the world around you is falling apart? It's amazing to me how many people are breathing air, they're going about their business and doing the things you're supposed to do. But if you really ask them, they know that on the inside, they are spiritually and emotionally and relationally dead. If we're not careful, all of us can experience that death. When what we need to do, even as the world around us is falling apart, we need to learn how to march when it would be easier to stay where we are and die. Join me each week on the March or Die show as we discuss that and so much more. Is that realistic? That's a good question. <laughs> um, we, we have a... This is part of why the early modern period is so interesting is we have a bunch of records because the printing press had been invented uh, and the, the political entities of Europe at the time were starting to take detailed records. Um, and there, so in the written record, the printing press record, that kind of thing. We do hear a lot of reports of that kind of thing. Usually, though, those are situations where there's a real uh, fanatical religious motive or, um, you know, something went wrong. The village resisted or, or whatever. Um, if you dig into it a little bit deeper, it can be a little bit uh, more tricky to say definitively what a raid on a village would actually be like. Uh, civil records from the time do show evidence of a huge demographic disaster. Like I, I said before, uh, potentially between a quarter and a third of the population of Germany died. But they probably died due to starvation and plague, which is disease is, a, is related to starvation, and not necessarily direct violence. Um, so so we, we can't have... There's no real direct evidence, provable evidence of some kind of genocidal extermination campaign of the kind we'd sort of be seeing from that, that intro scene. How long did it take Germany to recover from this? Uh, a, a very long time. Uh, the, the impact of the Thirty Years' War on the German psyche was basically something that persisted up until 
I, I mean, modern times, really, but it, it was something that people were talking about even, you know, as part of Hitler's rise to power, as part of the whole feeling that Germany was always put upon by the rest of Europe kind of thing. Um, well, it's, Hitler it's, certainly it's, changed that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's definite from the German perspective, the Thirty Years' War is a, a seminal moment in their history. Not a fun one, but a very important moment. From a, from a realistic standpoint, most of the raiding that would have been happened that would have happened would have been part of a effort by these mercenary companies and these mercenary armies to gather money and food to pay and feed their soldiers uh, and supplies as well. Uh, in that context, we probably shouldn't expect you know an extermination of the peasantry because that's pointless and ultimately like a waste of ammunition. <laughs> <laughs> um, what they would do is they'd, you know, come in and first of all, the peasants would probably scatter rather than cower in their houses because peasant houses weren't very sturdy. Uh, and then they just take all the food and the money and leave. Uh, sexual violence, I should say, certainly would have been part of this whole process, but th there's no slave markets. There there's no reason to kill or capture these peasants. That doesn't, uh, disqualify what I said before about the massive death rates from starvation and everything, because these peasants were still living in a medieval feudal uh, economy where they lived constantly on the edge of starvation. Uh, and having their crops stolen year after year after year uh, would eventually have resulted in massive starvation, which would lead to the kinds of casualty rates we see over a 30-year period. And it should be said that those casualty rates weren't spread evenly. Uh, in some areas of Germany, people were barely touched. But in the areas where the armies spent, you know, were doing these campaigns year after year, uh, the countryside was decimated. And you saw casualty rates well above uh, a third, possibly as high as two thirds, and in some areas even higher. Um, you saw the whole nine yards of refugees, massive plague outbreaks. Um, the, the countryside was essentially emptied uh, in these areas where the armies were were spending a lot of time. They don't quite explicitly say where this movie takes place, do they? No, they, they make a point of avoiding talking about it, uh, which is probably for the best. They kind of, at the end, you get a roundabout view that it's some... It, they mention the Battle of Rheinfelden, which if it's if that's if they're referencing a real battle, then that's somewhere in the Swiss, Austrian, German, Germany, air, southern Germany area, which might make sense given that it's in a lush mountain valley that gets snowed in. Yeah, I actually don't, off the top of my head, know about a battle of the Rheinfeld. Uh, it, I mean, it sounds reasonable enough that something like that would have happened, but. Uh... You know, I, I don't know. They, they really are... They avoid being specific. Um, so, uh, there are plenty of mountainous regions in Germany that this could have taken place in. But um, I, I would say that central Germany was much more exposed to the kind of devastation that the movie shows than southern Germany. Now, they actually find this valley, and it's as, about as lush as it possibly gets. Gary, can you explain a little bit about that? Just in, I mean, if you could picture a more lush, uh, incredible place to live, I can't imagine. No, it's like a chocolate box, isn't it? <laughs> uh, 
I mean, it's it's just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, apparently, it was filmed somewhere in the Tyrol, so I presume it actually exists. But compared to the scenes that's gone before, there's grass. There are huge heaps of, of wheat uh, ready for harvesting. Yeah, I mean, there's that very touching moment where Omar, uh, where Vogel's character goes up to one of these stacks of hay and just picks it up and looks at it. They're just like in complete disbelief. Because we learn a little bit more about him later, but he's seen the pretty, he's seen the, the rough end of this pineapple. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, so I should, you know, pour some cold water on this and just say that um, the kind of bucolic splendor that we see in, in these scenes uh, are, is sort of something that people think about when they're thinking about peasants not you know if if only there wasn't a war or a famine or a crop failure going on that's what it would be like um but like i've sort of said being a peasant in the late middle ages was terrible even when there wasn't a war going on um people were pretty much on the edge of malnutrition and starvation almost all the time and crop failures were fairly common uh and the local nobility had every incentive and legal right to extract as much uh, produce as they could from the peasantry, uh, to which the peasants found ways to resist, and they were very good at hiding things. But, you know, ultimately, peasant life wasn't great. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the, you know, things were not necessarily very bucolic. Um, I must admit, it does, it does portray the, the village as quite bucolic, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, if, if in modern times you set a little resort there, People would just be ooing and ahhing, saying, isn't this lovely? Yes. So this is a little bit of a nitpick, but uh, one thing that's just jumped out at me when I when I saw that scene of him, like, he, uh, he stumbles into the village, looks around in disbelief. He can't find anyone, so he sneaks into a barn to sleep for the night. And as he's doing so, he passes, like, a, a kitchen, which is full of, you know, rustic-looking wrought iron pots and pans. Um or I should say cast iron pots and pans, uh, because uh, cast iron pots and pans didn't exist <laughs> at, <laughs> at the time that uh, this story would have been uh, happening. Uh, casting iron was, was a process that was only just being figured out, uh, largely to make cannons. Uh, and it was, it was actually the Dutch who realized that you could take this process and use it to mass-produce pots and pans. Uh, and it happened either during this time or a little thereafter. So, so, so no Dutch ovens hanging no, over the fire. Exactly. No Dutch ovens. Uh, <laughs> the kinds of pots and pans that people would have had at this time would have been uh, actually hammer wrought iron pots and pans, you know, hammered out. And so if you think of a cauldron, you know, the, the black sort of kettle thing that you're thinking of in your head, that would be much more likely to be the kind of cookware that they would have. Uh, and no one would have multiple ones because that would have been an outrageous expense. Uh, people would have had one or two and, uh, a, a lot of cooking would have happened on big flat rocks. Oh, really? I thought that that scene was particularly powerful in that you get the sense that it's almost like the zombie apocalypse hit. There's yes. plague, there's people, and then there's going to be homes that are left open. Yeah. Everybody's dead. And the house is going to stay fairly intact for a while. 
Yeah. Uh, yes, in the opening scene, when Vogel stumbles on the village, the whole place is empty. And, and the people yes. don't reappear for a little while. The movie never explains where the hell they were. They just sort of come back again. And not only the people, but all their cattle. They uh, they seem to they sort of indicate over the course of the movie that uh, the village posts guards up in the hills, and when they see someone coming, they uh, they evacuate, which uh, strikes me as much more of a realistic uh, activity for peasants in the Middle Ages to do uh, rather than uh, what we saw in that first village that got sacked, which was hiding in their houses. Which um, just to you know put this out there. The, the term housebreaking used to be a literal thing. People would rip off the wall of a house and just take what they wanted. So <laughs> cowering in a house for protection was sort of stupid. <laughs> I have a scene uh, about the whole thing about the Virgin Mary shrine that they have set up. There was just endless conflict about that. Do you have anything to say about that? Um... I mean, not about the shrine in particular. The fact that there would have been men of both religions in the in the mercenary companies is fairly well attested. Yeah, let's just follow. We'll follow up on that. Do you have something? I think that that might be interesting to talk about. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, with these mercenary companies, they would uh, they would hire whoever showed up, and they just needed bodies. Uh, so, uh, very. Probably the most notorious example was the Swedish army, which was a machine, extremely well-disciplined, uh, just the best army of the age. Uh, but they just hired whoever showed up, regardless of religion, despite the very fanatical views of their commander, Gustavus Adolphus. So, you know, uh, armies were were made up of warm bodies who were disciplined by the the corporate situation that they'd entered into and not by belief or... Um, anything like that. So any mercenary company that would have taken the, a valley like this would have included people of, of both faiths, um, which potentially could have caused conflicts over things like the whether or not to burn the church or whether or not to move the, the Virgin Mary effigy uh, or uh, a shrine, rather. That, I, that part came across powerfully to me because then with that within the band of mercenaries there was strife where certain co-religionists would group together and other ones would group together but then they would cast out a fanatic there's there's so many levels of conflict that would happen there Mm -hmm. yeah definitely uh and it's it's a lot easier to avoid that kind of conflict when you're just treating all the civilians as disposable Yes, the era seems to be the opposite of live and let live, doesn't it? It's more like die swine. Everyone. Yeah. Everyone. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if you read the propaganda from that time, it's both sides viewed the other side as an existential threat just by existing. You know, uh, the, the Protestants were on the defensive for most of the war. But, you know, if you read their propaganda, just they find the existence of the Pope to be offensive. Yeah, they called him the whore of Babylon and... <laughs> Mm. all that stuff then as the war progressed they splintered into factions that probably hated each other just about as much as they hated the catholics well part of what made the war happen was actually that that splintering had already happened um the 
the, the previous settlement between the Catholics and the Protestants was called the Peace of Augsburg. And that was made between uh, the Lutheran princes and the, the Catholic uh, powers that be within the empire. Um, and what part of what happened is that the, the Protestant grouping had splintered into Lutherans and Calvinists, uh, people who were following John Calvin uh, as opposed to Martin Luther. Um, both of these men, of course, were dead by the Thirty Years' War, but there were substantial uh, groupings of people who followed either one of these, and the Calvinists just sort of didn't have a place within the Peace of Augsburg uh, settlement, uh, and so a lot of the Calvinists ended up in Bohemia, which is where the uh, defenestration of Prague happened, which is sort of what sparked off the whole thing. So, uh, the, the the Calvinist Lutheran split predated the war, probably caused the war to a certain extent. Um, ultimately, the Calvinists and the Lutherans were in a somewhat uneasy alliance. Um, really, the the Calvinists and the Lutherans didn't too much come to blows at post war. Really, um, there were plenty of divisions within Protestantism that led to wars, but uh, just. Uh, there were things like the Anglican split versus the, the Calvinists and the, the Presbyterians that were more important, just because Lutheranism sort of became fairly localized to Scandinavia and Germany, uh, for whatever reason. The Calvinists did a much better job at proselytizing. <laughs>